0: You don't need a three two one anymore. See, what I've got, I've got the zoom recording. We've got mine. I can sync them all together, line them up. I don't even need a clap. I just do it for fun.
1: You are listening to Service Course by the Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens: Energy Management for Committed Athletes and Coaches.
0: Lizzie, I, I got a real just just then. I got a real insight into the life of a pro cyclist as you were. Uh, on your phone, just wandering around your apartment, um, looking for batteries. Is that how life is for ProCycle? That's
2: pretty much how life is for me. Um, I just wander around my house, looking for stuff that I've probably misplaced whilst mumbling under my breath, blaming it on my husband, um, and eventually finding it in, well, actually it was in a stupid place, so I'm gonna blame it on my husband. But um, yeah, welcome to my life, and welcome to hey. Service Course with me, Lizzie Banks, <laughs> <laughs> and Dom Wally.
0: Lizzie, how do we find you? Like, so last uh, last month we sort of found you pretty much training as normal-ish?
2: Yeah, getting back to normal hours. Um, this, w- this month, sorry, you find me um, a little bit under the weather. I'm just fighting off a, you know, a, a winter cold, um, a little bit snotty, unfortunately. Uh, but, you know, Going well again, just tapping away at it. I'm not quite where you are, Tom. You know, you've been sitting on the turbo for an hour at 250 watts. That is the dream. So we're
0: a little well, bit late recording I, I, I
2: because um, you know you had to had to cool down after
0: your your turbo. I'm I'm quite good for an hour on a turbo. I mean, that's that's literally all I know. So well, I might actually um I might see you in real life, Lizzy. You'll be able to see my form. I might see you at Paris Roubaix. Uh, <laughs> in a few weeks time so um, we just need to make sure at least
2: by this like one hour and five minutes because <laughs> <laughs> when we get to 101
0: your powers just going to stop and i don't know how to turn corners well, like i, was I say, mean imagine being the cobbles
2: yeah i mean you're no not going to be on a stationary bike i guess um no. and tom is probably going to rely on you picking up that bike from the bike shop how's that going
0: all right tomorrow my bike has been in the bike shop my road but one of my road bikes has been in the bike shop for i think a year i think i think the listeners
2: know because every month you say you're going to pick it up
0: tomorrow i'm going to get it tomorrow no i'm going to get it tomorrow um listen uh, well listen you need to be doing some homework because you are on the main cycling podcast next week i
2: know yeah scary stuff yeah we're talking about men's cycling and women's cycling
0: have you been watching loads of racing, and particularly did you see uh, opening weekend? And did you see Le Samin on Tuesday?
2: I did indeed. Um, so well, the one thing that caught my eye from opening weekend, which I know caught your Everyone eye,
0: caught everyone's eye as
2: well, was Victor Campenart running the classified power shift system at Omloop Het and later Le Samin as well. And this is really interesting because if you listen to this show, listened to this show before, you will have heard us talk about the fast wide power shift system and if you don't know what it is it is a basically a front mech in your rear hub and it means that you don't have to have two rings there is a button you have a button on your handlebars uh, and you just press it to change gear and the shifting is absolutely sublimely uh, slick let's say So what I haven't told you, Tom, is that I actually got to try out this system in November back at Rouleur. didn't know that. And since I first heard about it, I was pretty blown away with the idea. It seemed seemed like it was going to be pretty seamless, pretty faultless, um, like it would be something that I would definitely want on my bikes if I were free to choose whatever I wanted. Um, But I hadn't actually used it, so I was kind of relying on, you know... um, media media stuff and kind of propaganda really that the company had put out there so well you know and reviews from other people but until you've really used it yourself you don't know and I was using it on a stationary bike but oh my goodness it was incredible like it was really amazing I you know jumped on the bike put out as much power as I could which at the time wasn't very much shifted and it's just it's just immediate it's absolutely seamless so is
0: it does it feel Equivalent to like having two chain rings at the front, or is there like a sort of a spectrum of of resistance you get from the back?
2: So it's just as if you if you had uh a, you know it's the same ratio as if you had uh, a, a two by set on the front, so a zero point seven to one. uh but it's inside the rear hub, um, and so it's completely free from dirt. It's sort of a you know you've got the the normal rear axle, and then it's there's a conical there's a conical housing where the cassette usually goes and a proprietary a proprietary one piece steel cassette um which is uh you know uh you can run it with SRAM Shimano Campagnolo uh which comes from classified which you put over uh that then kind of perfectly seamlessly fits over this conical bit where the actual mechanism is housed um and yeah i mean that's all there is all there is to it really um and so
0: so i mean to to Campanets, obviously we've seen at the weekend and on tuesday that he's riding this massive dinner plate uh, front ring that's not necessary that's not necessary is it to use the system
2: no 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 you can run whatever size front ring you want um and so previously they only they only ran it with their own wheel set and that was a little bit of a limitation because you had to buy the classified wheel set and um, I think back in June or July, they announced that they were having partnerships with a number of wheel brands, DT Swiss, importantly, because they are the, um, the wheel sponsor of Lotto Destiny where Victor Arts rides, but also notably Envy and Mavic. Um, but what is interesting is, is the thing that I thought that would stop this being used in the professional Peloton was sponsorships, you know, sponsorship requirements with people like Shimano, but Lotto Destiny yeah. are actually sponsored by Shimano. Um, but, I mean, he was, you know, still running. Well, he wasn't, yeah, he was still running. Everything else was Shimano, but he had this, you know, 60, 62 or 63 tooth front chain ring, <laughs> which is absolutely which, ridiculous.
0: Which, which, well, which I think, actually, aesthetically, I thought it looked quite nice on his bike, and it made everyone else around him, it made their bikes look slightly ridiculous, <laughs> you know, with their with the time shapes. But um, I think one of one of the things I picked up about it, I mean, I enjoyed watching it, and I think La Semin on... Tuesday was great because we got we got a lot of close-ups of it because Camponets was out front for for quite a while so we got to see it I think in the commentary there was a lot of comments made about that Campernets was having to sort of grind you know he couldn't jump and spin as fast as the other riders you know I mean he had to sort of raise his power you know by almost like mashing the pedal they were were sort of almost criticising his pedalling style but I and, and they were they were they were attributing that to the system, but I no, don't, I don't think so. Say it's quite smooth, you know. So it should. So if anything, that's to do with the size of his front ring. Yeah, absolutely, rather than absolutely. Well, I, I no. listen to
2: the commentary in French, and I have absolutely no idea what's going on. Uh, so, so, <laughs> so that's probably why I didn't pick up on that. But um, no, I, I think that's the size of his. That's the size of his front ring, um, which is his personal choice because you know he can he can change down at any point that he wants to and it's also probably I do think it is probably his own style you know he's not really he's more of a rider that's probably going to go smoothly up to something that's then is just going to explode um you know less of a style rider um and so he probably is just more of a masher you know it's well
0: so so, right so there's so Campernets gets a lot of attention these days, right? And because he's kind of one of the, the Peloton sort of weirdos, really, you know. In a good way, like, like Adam, Adam Hansen. Han- good- yeah. And like Adam <laughs> Hansen, in a, in a good way, you know, they are these sort of nerdy, interesting characters. You know, Alex Dowsett's got a little bit of that. They tend to come from from time trialling. But Taco van der Horn, again, mm-hmm. a little bit eccentric and interesting. My question is, is this is... This is I know this from record collecting and all sorts of male-dominated activities. Very male sort of personality type, this nerdy kind of character. But I was just wondering, in the women's peloton, who are are there riders sort of akin to Camponets in the women's peloton? And and who are they?
3: Mm,
2: That's a really, really good question. I don't think you're as
0: nerdy over there.
2: You know, I wonder... I wonder if this is nature or nurture, because I wonder if this is a product of, you know, I think often when you work with people who work with men's teams as well, they are really quite fascinated about how different the dynamics are between the men's team and the women's teams. And I remember when I was actually in Copenhagen for, um, it was the the Cannondale launch for uh, the Tour de France bike. And somebody from the EF Easy Post men's team was there uh, and trying to buy um, a duffel bag for one of the men's riders. And I thought, oh my goodness, really, you've sent one of your team into Copenhagen and they were staying quite far outside to go and buy you a duffel bag. Like that just would, you know, it's it's a small and stupid example, but it's something that wouldn't ever happen on a women's team. You wouldn't say, um, excuse me, can you just go and buy this for me uh, and not give them any money and... You know, <laughs> and I guess there's more of that kind of being able to get what you want on a men's team, maybe. Um, and so perhaps you know, I was going to say so perhaps like perhaps that's part of the reason, but also you know, there's this kind of instilled thing in our in all of our cultures that um, you know engineering is a is a male dominated field, and like and that I, that is changing. My my husband works in engineering um and and hopefully as that changes um you know more kind of power in in that sector will be given to women and then there will be more interests and we will have more um crazy weirdo nerds in the female peloton as well but no I think I think maybe there are but they're they're like they're kind of more under the radar
0: well that's your mission Lizzie is to is to find who that person okay. is you know next next time you're in the bunch you know which hopefully is very soon you know just be having a look around you has got sort of an extreme position, strange handlebars, and uh, we want to speak to them. So, yeah, go and find them.
1: The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. And now you can wear the Super Sapiens Energy Band, the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbott's LibreSense Glucose Sport Biosensor. The Super Sapiens Energy Band is available at supersapiens.com for €159. Euros.
0: Uh, Lizzie, you just mentioned being in Copenhagen for a Cannondale launch. Where were you last week?
2: <laughs> well, the week before last, actually, Tom. But I okay, was sorry. doing some secret sleuthing in Torrena. Um Now, last month I mentioned that uh, when you were trying to find out what Lab 71 was, and I couldn't tell you, my lips were absolutely sealed, Um, but I did give away the fact that I was just off to Girona with Cannondale for a week for something exciting, and that exciting thing was the launch of the new Super 6 Evo 4 and the launch of Lab 71. Um, And stupidly, I forgot to take any recording equipment with me (laughs) to Girona when I went, Um, so I had far too much fun riding the bikes out there. But I caught up with Sam Ebert and Nathan Barry from Cannondale after the event uh, to tell us all about the new Super 6 Evo 4 and Lab 71. Okay, well thank you both for joining me. And in a moment we will try to answer the burning questions which since the Super 6 Evo 4 was first spotted down under in January of what is Lab 71. And we're gonna delve into the nitty gritty details behind the bike. But first off, I wanted to hear a little bit more about you both, because Sam, I think I'm right in in saying that you're an ex-professional or semi-professional cyclist. Um, And so how did you manage to get this job being the top dog of of road cycling product managing uh, at Cannondale?
3: So I, well, correction first, I had a domestic pro license for cross-country mountain biking in the United States. So by global standards, I am a domestique at best. And uh, but it is interesting that you point that out because um, mountain biking and the pursuit of speed on the XC bike is what led me to develop fluency in road bikes. Any good and serious XC racer gains their fitness on the road, it's the most consistent place to uh, perform training and the best place to perform variable training intervals. Um, what have you. And uh, yeah, so that was really my foray into road bikes was actually in pursuing mountain bike racing.
2: And then so when you'd finished with your racing career, were you like, well, what am I going to do now? I've used my experience in the University of Cycling to go and work for a cycling it, company.
3: Yeah, it was, it was exactly that. I uh, had a pretty abrupt end to uh, my um, short foray in racing, and uh, pretty much said, I, I love the bike industry. I love cycling. Um, what's the next step for me? And actually, cracked into doing a bit of contract work, and then uh, work in the mobility segment. And then a couple years later, Cannondale came knocking.
2: I think somebody described your job to me as as something like the relationship counselor or the peacekeeper so you're the yes. guy that kind of like keeps the engineers and the designers happy when one says like i want a really lightweight bike and then they're going well yeah you, you can't do that cuz it's going to snap in half and
3: well you nathan's know nathan's saying
2: i want a really fast bike and they're like okay well
3: <laughs> well you know in in the united states many uh relationships end in divorce and um <laughs> i like to think of myself as a marriage counselor between marriage counselor terms engineers and designers. And, um, I'll side with Nathan on this one. We have a particularly, uh, persnickety bunch of designers that really don't appreciate the underpinning of performance, uh, when it comes to race bikes. So, um, I like to, you know, sometimes I have to ask them if, you know, our emotional curves and soft edges in the room with you here now. And, uh, yeah, we, we make race bikes on this team and, we want them to be beautiful, but first and foremost, they are, uh, they are fast.
2: And so, Nathan, um, tell me about how you got into cycling because you were actually studying aerospace um, at university, uh, aerospace engineering. And if I'm right in saying that you did a PhD, that basically your thesis of that basically led you straight into the world of cycling aerodynamics because it was on cycling aerodynamics before you then came the man that made Caleb Ewan really fast. Can I, can I attribute that to you? <laughs>
4: I would never claim that that was me, but uh, to to address it more broadly, uh, I did a bachelor's of aerospace engineering at Monash University in Australia, and uh, I then went on to do a PhD in the, um, wind tunnel and experimental aerodynamics group, and we had an ongoing relationship with the Australian Institute of Sport and the Australian Olympic Cycling Program. So during my time there, we We tested and optimized uh, probably every Australian athlete that went to a World Championship or Olympic Games like over the six year period that I was involved. So during that time we were working with uh, the the elite athletes from AIS, but then we're also doing research. So I was doing my PhD and writing papers. And uh, that was a bit of a dream gig to be honest. I've been riding bikes since I was 12. And I thought aer- like aerodynamics in cycling would be a very fun topic to tackle one day. I didn't think I would stumble onto it so quickly. Uh, and I thought maybe that was going to be the end of the road. So I was a uh, a, uh, a wistful Australian searching for a gig in the bike industry and just happened to, I guess, the stars aligned of Cannondale looking for engineers and Uh, I guess, changing the way we develop road bikes right around the time I came knocking and somebody there bothered to read my papers and thought I might be useful. My first project was System 6. That project had already kicked off when I started. So I basically got thrown in the deep end of development for that project. And then since then, it's been uh, System 6, third generation EVO, the second generation Super Slice, and now the fourth generation EVO.
2: Okay, well, first off, I'm going to come to probably back to you, Sam, to tell us what actually is Lab 71, because that's the I think that's the question that's been burning on everybody's lips for such a long time now for over a couple of months. Um, And I've been lucky enough to ride this Lab 71 bike and found out about it back in December in California when you guys visited us at training camp. But um, everybody else is desperate to know what is it?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Lab71 is our best done better. That's our, that's our tagline for it. And it's, it's quite authentic. Um, We uh, historically have been sort of, let's say constrained by commercialization. So there are things that we know our engineers are capable of. There are parts we know uh, outperform the status quo uh, that we would love to put into the bikes um, but uh, historically it's been a little, either unreasonable or inefficient in terms of our business model. So Lab71 is actually a project in which it's, it's a family of products in which we can really imbue our engineering pros, uh, prowess into the bike. Uh, we can hang these decadent boutique parts on the product, and then we can commercialize it as if it were a ground up frame set build we are delivering that boutique that uh next tier of performance product um in a production or an OEM capacity so uh d- different for for us of late but um you know an example that is pre-existing for Cannondale would be black ink um these were bikes we sold a little over i think 8 or 9 years ago and They used a a host of boutique components. Um, We did new experimentation with with paint weight and um, even resins and uh, fiber technology. So Lab71 makes use of a lot of the groundwork we laid with black ink, and then it brings it into 2023 in this new modern world of um, bicycle product design by uh, just reconsidering all material, all finish, um, all the components, all the specification, and then certainly, uh, considers what it takes to be a modern performing bicycle first and foremost.
2: So previously, uh, in all the editions of all the bikes, the top end model has been the high mod carbon. And that's really been the thing that, um, yeah, you know, the name that you'd hear out there, super six high mod. But the thing that I noticed in the presentation for the Lab 71 bikes was that now that you've got the series zero carbon in the Lab 71 bikes. So, I mean, what is that? Is it faster? Is it stronger? Is it lighter? Tell me what it is.
3: It is lighter. That is it. It And um, when I say that, I also mean to say that it is the same strength. It is the same speed because the speed is determined by Nathan's work um, in uh, in sort of structuring the the airflow over the bike and uh with the series zero carbon we're able in key areas of the bike to reduce the fiber count or the number of plies we use because this new fiber so uniquely tackles what we usually require from fibers structurally um how this is when we, uh, this is when we would, I would normally refer to an engineer, but I, I happen to know something about this. So typically we need to use two, fi- two fibers overlaid. Um, and you can kind of imagine this as let's say providing structure in one direction and then also in the other direction. So two plies are needed because bikes are multidimensional and receive forces from all, all over the place. Um, series zero carbon allows us to use a single ply to compensate for uh, forces applied to the the structure in multiple directions, um, where we used to have to use two or more. So it's very advanced material.
2: Whilst maintaining the same ride feel, because I have to say, I mean, I was riding the super six three last year and then riding the super six four. And, you know, I'm often quite surprised when a bike is lighter and better, you know, for want of a better word, but, but still feels really nice to ride, which this bike really does um because there's a lot of there's a lot of different little upgrades on it you know mm-hmm. when you look at it a lot of things that you might think might actually diminish the ride quality for instance there's a you know very very aero seat post so Nathan a lot of your work i'm sure has been on on making it a lot faster you know you've got the super zero, zero carbon that's going to make it lighter but you've also got to make it faster because you want to close that gap down to the system 6 um but how do you do that So you've got this really thin seat post, but then isn't that going to is that going to affect the ride quality? And in my experience, no, it hasn't. But I don't really understand how, like, how it's so comfortable still when you know you you have got these really aero features and it is still still super stiff. Like, how do you find that balance?
4: Uh, That's pretty much the crux of the problem. Uh, (laughs) I guess I guess a lot of my job, as well as just the you know the aerodynamic side of things, is balancing that against the other elements of the design because typically weight and aerodynamics are in competition. And in a lot of cases, ride quality and aerodynamics and weight are all in competition. So, you know, the, I guess the magic of the fourth generation Evo is kind of the whole having your cake and eating it too, in that you don't have to sacrifice one for the other. And that's really just come from us developing knowledge over generations of development and, having a very detailed understanding of which parts of the bike and which elements and which members contribute to different parts of performance so the seat tube for example the upper seat tube and the seat post are really really important for aerodynamic performance Um, it's actually a bit of a misconception that by having a pedaling rider it diminishes the effect of the seat tube and the seat post but it's actually the opposite because you get uh an acceleration it's it's like a venturi tunnel between your legs so the air moving over your seat post is the fastest anywhere on the bike in most cases so that's really critical for performance like aerodynamic performance so then you know if you look at the lower half of your seat tube you can see that the the seat tube is almost completely different in its orientation of top versus bottom uh and that's where understanding the the flexing elements of the frame and what leads to ride comfort we've sort of imbued that into the the lower sort of structural half of the bike which is far less aerodynamically sensitive and that really involves us bringing over work from our other teams and other development projects so uh, if people are familiar with topstone that's a bike that has a active rear end without suspension members it's sort of the whole back end of the bike is working like a leaf spring system i was gonna say
2: tell me tell me what an active rear end actually <sighs> actually means in in real world terms
4: <laughs> well basically instead of being two triangles stuck together very rigidly the the rear end of a top stone is uh is not just about saddle movement a lot of a lot of comfort platforms focus on like saddle comfort but the top stone actually has uh movement at the rear axle as well so you actually get true suspension travel out of a bike that has no suspension linkage components. Mm. Um, and the magic of Kingpin in that bike is not just the, the pivot that you can see at the top of the seat stays. It's actually a whole system working together. And so that's where, you know, the the team that worked on Topstone and the lessons that we have gained developing a gravel bike that needs to be really, really compliant and active that has taught us how some of the elements of the bike move and interact together and so we can take those lessons and apply those into evo uh you know where it's available to do so
2: actually something that you said there gave me a really good idea because i what you were saying about the seat post being sort of the most important factor in terms of aerodynamics more so than the handlebar on the front end even
4: uh, no, I wouldn't say it's more important than the front end, just that the air moving there is
2: faster than it is okay. at the front end. Okay, so if that's really important, this is a completely hypothetical off-topic question to make myself faster. Um, but is it then better to have a smaller bike frame so that you've got a longer seat post so that if that bit is so critically important, then that makes you faster? Uh, it's
3: purely
2: Purely hypothetical speculation.
3: I love it when Nathan gets put in these positions because he <laughs> hates he hates speculating on performance. It's what makes him the best at his job.
2: But... I know he's like, let me let me go away and model this and then come back and give you a hard answer. But I'm gonna put you on the spot here, Nathan. Tell me, is that yeah, the reason
3: an for this is
4: because when I provide exact answers, people are really happy. And then when they ask me to speculate, they're like, well, he gave me an exact answer last time. So I'm just going to treat this as gospel. And then I'll like <laughs> I'll see it on a website or a blog forum later on. And I'll be like,
2: gosh, dang it. Well, when I downsize uh, to so, a 48 and I just start winning every single race, we can, we can just take that as gospel. It's because of the seat post. <laughs> I, the simple answer to that
4: is the seat post and the seat tube are sculpted together. So by lowering the top of the seat tube, the, the seat post is a little slimmer than the seat tube. So yes, in theory, it's probably a little bit faster, but then you have more slope on the top tube. You're gonna have extra spaces at the front to offset the fact that you're on a smaller frame size. So I would say the net is gonna be no different. So just ride the size that you belong on.
2: <laughs> ride, ride the bike that actually fits you. Okay, that's, that's actually uh, pretty pretty good advice. Okay. that also
4: plays into like the bigger picture of performance as well, right? Like one of the things that we talk to our riders at camp, like your team and the, the men's team is about understanding the balance of performance and it's power in versus resistance. So from from my perspective and Sam's perspective, our job is to deliver the best optimized equipment but then the rider side of that equation is putting in the maximum amount of energy into the system. And that's where your work with a coach and a nutritionalist and physio and like all of that, like biological stuff goes into making the rider, the optimum engine. And so if you have a bad fit, then you will have bad input power, but potentially also like bad, uh, bad positioning on the bike. So that's, that's where like you should never get hung up on something uh, very, I know it was a hypothetical, but like getting hung up on certain <laughs> elements to be like, oh, well, if I do this, I'll be faster. It's like, a, there's, a, there's a big picture that you have, to, you have to understand. It comes back to having control of our whole platform. So this is not just about the frame and fork, but as a, as a group, we control everything on the Evo 4. So it's our own wheels and our own cockpit, as well as the frame fork seat post. So having control of those, and this is one of the things I pushed for early on, and Sam was with me on this one, is if we control all of those elements, then we can have better control over the end performance of a complete bike. I think in the past, frame weight or frame and fork weight has kind of been a common metric in the in the bike mm. world. And that's because everything else was sort of interchangeable. But uh, the frame and fork especially at high end builds only, only goes so far into the total system weight. You know, your frame is about, you know, of an Evo is 800 grams, 770 for a, a Lab 71, but a complete bike is nearly seven kilos. So there's all the other stuff that goes into it. Um, and that goes for aerodynamics as well, like wheels and cockpit, for example, both have a big impact on system weight and, and aerodynamic performance. So basically by controlling the whole system, and then focusing on each element, we were able to really dial in that performance, you know, front to back on the bike and chase that, you know, ultimate desired race weight uh whilst imbuing it with as much speed as possible.
2: Okay, so speaking of you know ultimate performance, ultimate speed, this is actually a question I asked you both at camp. Um, but I want to ask you again, because I think it's an interesting question, because you've you've more than half that gap between super six three and system six in terms of speed. Um, so why wouldn't you still just ride the system six most of the time?
4: In a lot of cases, at least if you consider riding by yourself and trying to go as fast as possible, aerodynamics is almost always going to be victorious. Um, like you can, you can simulate it. Um, I, I have uh, in the past done a lot of modelling with pro team data. So we've actually gotten, you know, like uh, GPS tracks straight off your head unit. And I can calculate second by second what is the fastest piece of equipment at any point in a race. So we can do that. Um, if assuming, you do that to...
2: assuming that we can switch bikes, you know, like 20 times during a race, wouldn't that be the ideal scenario? Well, <laughs> The, the real
4: question is understanding where the most important part of the race is. So if you're a general classification rider, probably the most important part will be the 10-kilometer climb. And so you need to get to the top of that climb as fast as possible because that's where your goal is. But if you are a sprinter or, get, save in the same stage, if you're a domestique, your job is going to be riding on the front, getting bottles chasing gaps and making sure your leader never has to ride in the wind so your job and your optimum or the the space where you need to optimize your performance is not the same for every rider on a team even on the same day and so that's where understanding that is kind of focusing your choose your choice that way but setting that aside if you just go for somebody riding by themselves aerodynamics will always be faster if you make the bike super super heavy like a you know, uh, a London city bike or something, you're going to be off the deep end. And yeah, then maybe weight starts to become important. But in the space of something like a system six, which is uh, kind of at most one kilogram above the UCI limit, the aerodynamic gains average out to be better almost all the time over a long enough period. So it really comes down to those specific points in races. So if you are a climber, previously or if you had different options you might have to choose between something that is light but high drag and low drag or a bit heavier and so then you have to make a trade-off basically as to how much are you willing to give up of one or the other in your performance and the the dream with evo then is that it's very difficult for you to make the wrong choice now because Mm. if you do end up having to ride really fast solo in the wind it's Probably faster than anything else in the Peloton. And if you're climbing, you're not having to give up anything in terms of weight or stiffness. So it kind of comes down to making the choice easier for riders. And for those that still want to ride a System 6, that option is there. So if it's a dead flat stage or a sprint or you're pulling on the front, System 6 is still a very good choice because it does have more ultimate speed. but in terms of riders in general, there is a the two bikes feel different to ride, so there's also that element of it, and so some people choose a bike less based on you know what I can prove as in terms of speed, and based on the way it feels to them to ride. So uh, there's still a place for System Six. The Evo has just taken more of its real estate.
2: You know, where do you get these ideas from? How do you come up with these things? Other other great little innovations like putting the di2 battery down in the bottom bracket um so that when you take your seat post out you don't rip your battery out and then you you know you can't get it back in and i have done that before i've also gone to a race with my seat post with a battery in it and come back from a race with my seat post without a battery in it and then tried to ride my bike without a battery which is not very useful, um, you know, other things mm-hmm. like there's a, a foam insert that goes in the down tube that holds the, the cables in place uh, and stops rattling around in your frame and really simple things that actually make the world of difference to, to the overall feel and the overall, yeah, you know, the overall ride of the bike. Like, you know, where does, where does this come from? Where does this design process come from?
4: At, at least I can speak for some of the engineers here, but most of us are nerds. And we all <laughs> love bikes. Most of the listeners are nerds as well. So yeah. including welcome, including Tom welcome and I, to the club the everybody. As well. so that's good. <laughs> everybody welcome to the club. But <laughs> we all we all love riding bikes and talking about bikes and thinking about bikes. And so I can't go for a ride with my colleague, one of the other road engineers, without us talking about something that we think we could do better or do differently, or what's good and what's bad. And that's just like a, a resting state of us always trying to improve whatever we have done before. And so that comes with like generational evolution. And as Sam talked about, historical knowledge built up over time is just the more that we live and work on these products, the more we're able to refine and optimize them. And that's, that's where you get opportunities to just keep improving little bit by little bit. And, you know, we all want to love and have the best bikes for us to ride. And we want to make sure that we can do that for everybody else as
3: well. I'm glad you can consider those moments, uh, you know, uh, restful because I find riding with you guys quite exhausting.
1: The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport. Fueled by science.
0: Thanks as ever to Science in Sport for their continued support of all that we do here at the Cycling Podcast. And personally, thank you for the support you give to me while I'm on the turbo. I actually met uh, alongside Lionel, we met with some of the um, Science in Sport crew uh, a couple of weeks ago. And it was great for me to find that there's a strong East Midlands connection. So strong, in fact, that we even considered meeting up at a local garden centre next time that we do it. You can now subscribe to Science in Sport. If you go to scienceinsport.com, you can actually subscribe to your preferred products. So... You're never scratching around for a gel before a ride or a recovery drink. So uh yeah, go and check that out. That's at scienceinsport.com. Going back to the racing at the weekend, Lizzie, there's one thing that, well, a lot of the a lot of people spotted, and that was loopholes, aero leg warmers.
2: Yes. Now this is actually something I've been thinking about for quite a while. Yeah.
0: Lizzie, are you the nerdy one in the women's peloton? Is it you?
2: No, I think I just think about these things, but I don't actually act on them. Right. <laughs> okay. Or or I just say that I've been thinking about them, you know, so <laughs> I haven't actually thought about them. Okay. Well, yeah, so it, Circus into No, what are they called? Intermarche, Intermarche Circus, circus Monte. Monte. Yeah, all the flipping of the names is really... Uh,
0: Listen, if you're on the men's, pe- men's know, podcast I've this week, you've it. got to get it right because Lionel's not getting it right. I know that.
2: <laughs> I'm going to be cramming all day Sunday. Well, Intermarche Circus Wanty um, asked Nalini to produce them a an aero leg warmer. Now, you can't have aero socks longer than halfway between your ankle and your knee, but there is no regulation that says you can't have aero leg warmers. So Nalini were asked to produce these aero leg warmers and they were used over the weekend, which I think is a great idea. And I've actually been wondering why we don't have sort of, yeah, aero, aero longs as well, because you know, longs are much more comfortable than leg yeah. warmers and shorts in my opinion. And if you're going to wear leg warmers in a race, then well, you're not going to be taking them off halfway through a race, or at least not in a women's race because the intensity is so high. Yeah. And when it comes to a world championship chime trial, surely you could just wear a one-piece suit as if you're wearing a kind of downhill ski suit. It doesn't have to be thick and uh, have a Roubaix material on the inside. It just has to be a thin lycra that you put over your whole body. Now, as far as I know, there's no regulations against that, but I am am more than happy to be proven wrong. Um, I would love to be proven wrong, actually, so please do write in and tell us. Um, (laughs) uh, But yeah, I mean, there's... Even even if there was something stopping you creating a, a one piece with with legs down to your ankles, there wouldn't be anything stopping you in creating a a um an arrow, you know, bib bib long rather than big, you know, bib tight rather than bib short. And yeah, it's a great idea. Why not? And it's the same with the long sleeve, the long sleeve jerseys. Often the long sleeve jerseys are sort of like your standard midweight winter jerseys, but wax marrow material on them and it's free speed. Why not?
0: That chat about leg warmers sort of takes us nicely onto our next item. And with us back in the swing of the season, and for a lot of us with opening weekend would have been seeing our first live races of the season. It's a chance to check out all those new kits. I was on Twitter recently, don't hold it against me, and um, there was quite a lot of chat about the quality or lack of graphic design in cycling, particularly around cycling jerseys and the clothing that cyclists wear. And that linked quite nicely to a conversation I had a few weeks back with Sam Morgan from a brand called Pariah. So yeah, I spoke to Sam, but before that, I spoke to an old friend of the cycling podcast. Whenever there are matters of cycling and design, and I'm not talking about the technical side of things, I'm talking more about the aesthetic kind of things, I always want to speak to Kate Wagner. Now, I love speaking to Kate anyway. She's a fine cycling journalist, and anyone who's heard her shows for Cycling Podcast can attest to that. But Kate is also a student of architecture and she writes brilliantly on that subject. She's also great on Twitter. And around the time of the release of the new Trinity Jersey, she gave some excellent takes on that platform.
1: A problem that cycling is funny because it has a really rich graphic design history, right? I mean, you have some of the best and most iconic pieces of graphic design and cycling that really persist to this this day. And they come from, you know, it comes f- as far back as like Molteni with like Eddie Merckx. Uh, it goes, to, it's like, you know, La Claire, Toshiba, Panasonic, uh, Mape, You know, these really excellent, the Brooklyn cycling cap, which was so cool. It pushed out of cycling and into streetwear culture.
5: 1989 the number, another summer. Yeah. Sound of the fucking pajama. Music in your heart, cause I know you got soul. You know,
1: it's interesting to me that cycling rarely ever pulls from from that rich design history. I feel like cycling kit especially is designed like they're designing a PowerPoint slide instead of designing a kit, like something to be worn. People don't understand that these are clothes and they're moving on a human body. I understand completely the need to have multiple sponsors on a jersey. However, I think another problem is that when you don't trust a graphic designer to do their work and instead try and design a kit by committee, which is, I'm pretty sure after talking to some people who know this personally, is what happens, you just end up with kind of this half-baked idea that is just you can tell it's trying to be something but it can't really get there um, and it's really the more sponsors you have of course the more difficult it is but like we're starting to be kind of nostalgic for example for like I don't know like Cantani and this this era of sort of graphic design like in streetwear for example like Supreme has been doing these rugby shirts where it's just a kind of like you know striped rugby shirt with collage of different logos and it's like no this collage aesthetic is cool right now and no one is No one in cycling design has their finger on the pulse of what's cool. Like most of the jerseys are working with design elements from, I mean, I kid you not, like 10, minimum five, like more than 10 years ago, uh, these aesthetics.
0: I like the collage thing. The shirts may be cool, but you'll never, you heard it here, ever catch me in a rugby shirt.
1: People ask me, like, what is wrong with, with cycling kit? And I think that it's really easy to distill what's wrong. Um, what EF and Rafa and, you know, the, and Trinity understood was that these are closed, like I said before. They're, and that, you know, they're not only are they closed, but they have to be, people think that, like, recognizability for a team depends solely on the logo being on the jersey, which is kind of stupid. Like the palace thing really cemented the fact that people were looking at the jersey beyond the logo, right? They were looking at, or like Trinity, for example, like they've created a visual design language that is so cohesive that you don't need to see the logo to be able to understand that that's Trinity. And this is a lot of how fashion works. I mean, not all fashion is just like huge brands on sweatshirts, like, I mean, yeah, Supreme or something like that. But, you know, Louis Vuitton is not just being like Louis Vuitton on a huge sweatshirt. You know, Uh, there's a really fundamental misunderstanding by sponsors as to, you know, what makes a kit recognisable and intriguing, and you know, what leads people to ask questions about their brands.
0: You're good on sneakers as well.
1: Mm -hmm. I love sneakers. Yes.
0: Yeah, me too. Um, The cycling shoe Can it, can it learn from the sneaker?
1: I'm writing about this actually right now. I'm doing some research on this. Essentially. I think that it's interesting to me about cycling and shoes, right? Because you wouldn't normally think of cycling as a shoe sport, but it just kind of ended up that way a little bit because people, um, the camera people, the motorbike started zooming in on the gearing. And so you started to see the shoe really closely. Um, for And this is like a relatively, you know, new development, I think. I'm not quite sure when this started, but like it's only recently have the shoe thing caught on. And people have started to realize like the shoes are an option for customization in in a sport that is very uniform. Uh, and people have started to auction off their shoes for charity. They have their custom painted shoes. Um, but like it's funny because Nike, for example, has been producing a cycling shoes for a really long time. And they're not really part of the culture at all. Um, like the idea that a cycling shoe could become more like a sneaker and less sort of like a, a customized uh, you know, kind of thing is, is an interesting question. I, I feel like we're getting closer and closer to that, uh, you know, to that realm, but the side people still think of the shoes as a form of tactical wear or like a form of, um, like athletic wear, that doesn't have a use case outside of cycling. Like, for example, you're not going to wear cycling shoes to the far.
0: People wear flip-flops with socks these days, so I won't put it past them. Anyway, thanks to Kate. Hopefully I'll see you at Paris-Roubaix. Now, you heard a little bit of public enemy earlier on. And I know there's been a lot of sort of hip-hop cycling podcast crossovers recently, particularly with Daniel's episode titles. The reason I played you a bit of Public Enemy was because Kate was talking about the Brooklyn cycling cap, which broke through into streetwear. And that was captured in Spike Lee's movie, Do the Right Thing, where one of the characters is um, seen dressed like a courier, rocking the... Brooklyn siphon cap and Spike Lee himself has worn that cap but notably if anyone saw The Last Dance that documentary about the Chicago Bulls, incidentally Kate's team, which was massive during lockdown. Spike Lee in that, you see him in an advert with Michael Jordan rocking that cap. Anyway, enough about the Brooklyn cap. One of my favourite UK brands for cycling stuff on and off the bike is uh, Pariah and Pariah started, as you'll hear in this, as simply filling a gap where the founder, Sam Morgan, couldn't get what he wanted and so he decided to solve that problem by starting a business that made it. So here's Sam. Oh, and before we get into it, there is a little bit of language in this interview. I probably should have pulled Sam up for it, but I was too into the conversation. So, uh, yeah, if you're listening with young ears or you don't like that sort of stuff, then skip ahead a little bit.
6: For me, I mean, my background is food and drink sales, and like uh, sales and marketing, and just, I mean, it's it's I'm sounding a bit hackneyed and cliche saying this, but like, I was. Um, I was kind of square peg in a round hole, just didn't, never really fitted in, I was quite good at what I did, and started kind of going through like, building, going up the ranks base and getting more and more noughts onto my paycheck, and just wasn't very happy with life, so mid-30s, decided to set the plunge and set it up, took a bit of a left turn really, and it was really born out of me getting back on the bike a lot, lot more for a few years and just not liking any of the kit and buying really weird, obscure brands. I've, I've been this honestly, that's how I came to you because yours is the sort of
0: brand that I gravitate, you know, being frustrated with sort of regular and also for myself coming out of that more of a fixed gear sort of background, you know, that you sort of embody that
6: aesthetic a little bit, you know, 100%. That, and it's so interesting that you did that. That was your kind of like journey to us because that does happen quite a lot
0: if you're interested in fixed gear or ever rode a fixed gear or part of that scene or just curious kind of goes back to i was talking about spike lee earlier on i um made a fixed gear special for service course looking at the origins and legacy of that scene so you can find that on the feed and yeah do the right thing crops up in that
6: was that your background then, riding fixed? No, not at all. To be honest, it was kind of like more just. I think it was the aesthetic fits with the vibe, and it's a bit. It was more the kind of subversive underground element to it, really. That that kind of. I mean, I, I did, I I can ride a fix, and I have done, and I've used one for commuting and stuff. But I wasn't really like in the scene or anything. I was on the peripheries of it, really, and I was more into road stuff. And I think it was more bringing that flavor into the road scene. And what I tended to find was exactly like yourself was. It was this kind of journey into the, out of the fixing, getting onto road bikes, and now I would say gravel's kind of plugging that gap. That's the kind of one that people are going for. It kind of completes the circle, doesn't it?
0: I think you know, it's, you've gone kind of, people have gone the long way via road to gravel, but actually it's probably shorter distances. aesthetically anyway, style wise. You know, just goes straight from fixed fixed to gravel. Um, but that's, that's that is what what sort of drew me um, surprised. So it was so it was a side project. Is it now like the full time? Sure, yeah, it was.
6: We, I kind of did it, I started getting more and more serious about it. It started to take more and more of my time. And I was kind of like doing the kind of like sort of 90, 10%, 80, 20%, 70, 30%. And then it flipped the other way around. So the day job became prior and the side hustle became the kind of conventional stuff. And then I was in two minds where to go with it, really. I was kind of I was starting to run out a bit of steam and then COVID kicked in. It literally like as COVID kicked in. And it just went batshit because, obviously, everyone was at home. You could only really ride bikes. Everyone had disposable income because they couldn't do anything with it. And we could still ship stuff. And it just went nuts. And we got completely – we got slammed, actually. We got slammed with that and then with Brexit. It was, like, just continual. But it we hit a decent growth period, really. And we also do a lot of stuff, like, for third-party brands, a lot of Insta brands we were doing. So we kind of capitalized on that, and it just grew and grew off the back of that. And so that became, it had to become full-time. I started bringing it, you know, I ended up last year, beginning of last year, we had five people. We're down, sorry, six. We're down at three at the moment, um, just because it's calmed down a bit, really. And we, and speaking to people in the bike industry, that is tends to be what's happened. There's a surplus of stock. Everyone's scaled up to meet a demand that just isn't really there anymore. So... Yeah. It's uh, it's just kind of a re, sort of rebase at the moment, but yeah, it's it, it as a long politician's answer of saying, yeah, that was the journey how I got to it <laughs> Do you know what our vision is? Is to start, and I am and trying to think if you can if you can come up with a better way of saying this. It's like to go like the vans of the cycling world, and I'll give you an anecdote in a minute on this. Well, you're well. gonna start a you're gonna start a punk tour, and go to Ali Pali <laughs> potentially. Listen, I love that, more, for that. might would be more middle class white hip hop. I think it's catering for people on the peripheries, really, and that's where the na- the name came from. I mean, if I had my time again, I would probably change the name because no one can ever pronounce it, but it just fit. So that's it's a lot of it. a lot of it has come out of my head. And then I think, you know, when I've talked to people before about it, I said, like, where this has come from was basically me not really feeling catered for. And then realizing gradually there's a load of other people who didn't really feel catered for. The <laughs> originally it was just born out of tech cycling kits, so It was stuff to wear on the, on, on the bike, as in cycling jerseys, cycling shorts. Uh, that's literally where we started. Did a few caps um it started the accessories were born out of what i needed and what i wanted to wear myself so i was like well basically i'll create this and i've got to admit we went at it like a spunky firework it was like the widest possible kind of remake i was like i know i want i want a kind of street art kind of vibe with 90s house and the the hip-hop vibe and i like camo throw camo in the mix and it was um, it was massively ridiculous. It just didn't have any kind of cohesiveness. My logo wasn't right, and gradually, as time went on, I realised this collect. It needs to be a collection. It needs. Be- it needs to, you know, but have some a theme through it. The logo needs tightening up, and it then it started to move into well, teas. You know, people are like do teas. Can you do some teas? And me having ideas for teas is just like I don't know. It comes to me all the time. Was a random weird shit. I mean, we, we do collab stuff. So when you say where the ideas come from, a lot of them are like linking up with artists, and it's interesting because they come to you and they go, "So what do you want us to do?" And I'm like, "I've literally come to you because I want to your style. I don't want me to tell you what to do. You tell me what you want to do." And we've we've kind of we've we've pushed that over into like working with um, female artists as well. You tell me what you would want to wear as a, you know as a girl on a bike. And that kind of that's worked really well. Otherwise, you can end up with a bit of a weird mishmash. And it's like I'm going to work with these guys because I like their style. I'm bringing their their vibe to you know to people's to cyclists' backs. I, I will sketch stuff out. Push bikes, not drugs. Is mine. I yeah. came up with that. I got that t-shirt as well. Okay. That's turned up all over. The, that was on Rad. The guy who, who organises Rad Race in Germany started the Rad the last yeah. the last year's Rad Race with it, and he's on the starting. Like buying a bit with it on, Um, but yeah, I mean, it's all it's again. I have to watch it. And last year, I would have said probably we overdid it a bit in terms of design numbers. We had so many. It's just because we like doing good stuff. So it's like, well, brilliant. Let's crack on and do it. And actually, you know, you need to just chill your jets a bit.
0: Do you, do you sort of make kit for a few teams and stuff like that as well? Then
6: yeah, yeah, we do. I mean, we don't know anyone to very mainstream to be honest. But it's more collectives we work with and people who've got a good kind of ethos behind them and they want to do it's it's usually what we tend to do is and it's interesting we set the brand up um sort of to cater for people who didn't feel catered for by like mainstream brands and then we tend to work with people who don't feel cared by our mainstream clubs so basically anyone with the name wheelers in a cycling club automatically don't work with us um we do get a lot of people what they do is they tend to break off from these clubs and it tends to be more than one or two of them they, they come up with a name they come up with a kit come with an identity because of who they are and what they're doing they tend to have quite a good idea of what they want from you know a collective and we that's who we tend to work with we do work a lot with craft brewing and that's just seems to have evolved really and it's not really from a hipster stroky beard sort of place it's just that, that that scene has got and in fact i often i often relate back to kind of like vinyl and artwork covers of old from like the Eighties and nineties, in the fact that it's dead graphically led with a really nice product behind it, and it just lends itself so well. So, and a lot of people, without wishing to be lads, 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 oi, 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 is beers and bikes. So they'll kind of ride a bike to offset the effect of having a few beers and enjoy a few beers after riding a bike. So it fits all that. I, I want to do. A, I need to do a jersey with a, a hip hop collaborator, and a, especially with a strong kind of obviously graphic. Representation, could we'll probably getting her in the mix, but I don't think I can afford the royalties or the merch rights on something like that. We'd have to be turning over some wedge to get that. You will never get Wu-Tang, because you know Wu-Tang do their own bike. What shell have I been, or what stone have I been living under?
4: A game of chess is like a sword fight.
5: You must think first, right? before you move. Are we rolling, Tom? We are rolling. We're rolling. Yeah, should we uh, address the elephant in the room, Lionel? Well, what are you wearing? I mean, it's a shame the listeners can't see this. It looks like some kind of poncho. <laughs> yeah,
0: it's, it's exactly that. It's uh, It won't surprise you to, to know that it came from Etsy. And uh, it's made of that, like, really itchy wool. So you can only imagine the kind of... It basically smells like a festival. It's, it's wow. Sort of it's imbued with joss sticks and stuff. And it's got... Look at the lining.
5: Look at that. Very nice. I know it's cold there in the UK. Um, I'm rubbing it in now. I've arrived in San Remo and, well, the temperature is about nearly 15 degrees warmer here than it is back there in the UK. It's extraordinary. Spring is actually here. You've literally
0: done the race to the sun, haven't you?
5: We have done the race to the sun, yeah. We've taken a couple of days to drive down to San Remo past Nissan an hour and a half ago and I'm sorry I'm just looking at you, you look like one of those characters that could have been in the bar scene in the first Star Wars film then so you need to play some kind of uh, jaunty jazz trumpeting music in over the Listen, top here
0: that can be arranged Arnold. let's do that now here we go <laughs> uh, what you did in San well it's pretty obvious but what you did in San Remo
5: I we are here for the first monument of the season, Simon Gill and I, Simon the photographer, as listeners will know him. We have come down to San Remo, we are going to make friends of the podcast episode here. Uh, we're also going to do the first episode of Arrivé, our short, sharp hit that uh, Daniel and I will record on the whistle after Manan San Remo on Saturday. And uh, yeah, we're here to ride the last mm, 100k-ish of the course. So, yeah, looking forward to it. I'm very, very pleased to see that it's, although it's not quite, um, you know, shorts and short sleeve weather, it's just leg and arm warmers. I mean, it feels so long since I've ridden in just leg and arm warmers. So I'm looking forward to it.
0: And you're with Simon as
5: well. Is Simon riding with you? Simon recovered? Simon has more or less recovered from his broken leg playing a silly sport called football. Okay. And, uh, yeah, we will, we, he might have to do an Arno de Mar on one of the climbs, perhaps, if he's struggling. But we'll get him over the climbs. And uh, there's a reward of a pizza and beer in San Remo at the end of the ride. So, I mean, what's not to like? Well, so very nice. Um, before you went to San Remo, you made another
0: trip to uh, Cycling Heartland when you came up to Nottingham to see me and at the first meeting of the Cashkai Owners Club. And uh, what did you leave in
5: the passenger seat? Well, I brought you a Cycling Podcast jersey made by Matt, our clothing partners and very good friends, I brought it up for you, and then I left it on the passenger seat. I forgot to hand it over, so I'll pop it in the post when I get home, Tom. Sorry about that. Uh, but I'll be wearing my MAP jersey, our Cycling Podcast jersey, as I ride along the coast uh, to San Remo, and uh, well, will I have it sort of zipped open to the waist on the Poggio, breathing deeply? Who knows? Who knows? I've got to say that, I mean, like, we, we all talk
0: about you know fashion and style, and obviously you know, we are involved with Matt, but Um, I was gutted when I didn't get mine because I've seen all the images of you in Scotland. And uh, you you and Simon look mega.
5: Yeah, it was a really interesting process to observe that actually. Map, of course, Melbourne-based cycling company, formed in the same year as the Cycling Podcast. So coming up to their 10th anniversary as well. So a really new company. And what they did was they wanted to tap into all of that kind of history and heritage of professional road cycling. And, well, you, listeners may well, remember that over the course of the Tour de France, we unveiled these three designs that maps designer Misha Glicevic had come up with, and then the listeners voted. And much to Francois Thomas' chagrin, the sort of 1960s checkerboard design didn't win. The winning design was soft, which was really trying to capture the spirit of the late 80s, early 90s. And I thought the, you know, in, in trying to sort of evoke that era, uh, Misha did a fantastic job, because to me, I'm just transported back to that sort of 88, 89. There's sort of shades of acid house in there, isn't there, with the, with the, the fluoro colouring, uh, the typography, I think, absolutely on point. And I think it's really interesting when you look at the history of jersey design. I know it's uh, kind of become trendy to um, criticise the teams for uh, all wearing sort of red and black or red and navy blue, as they seem to all be doing this year. But I think it's important to remember that uh, these designs kind of tell the history, not just of the sport, but also of kind of you know, European commerce in a lot of ways. You know, what were the sponsoring companies trying to sell? Whose eyes were they trying to catch? And uh, definitely that late 80s period when all of the, the fabric started to um, evolve, became a lot more versatile. There was, uh, you know, the option to print rather than just knit. And uh, that's what led to this kind of, you know, and I say acid house explosion in in Jersey design, and I think our Jersey really taps into that era. And you know, I'm a child of that era, so it really takes me back. Could easily be in the peloton now, I think.
0: Um, Lana, you are someone who appreciates a jersey uh, deeply, whether that's football or cycling. Just run us through I mean on the cyclist let's not talk football. On the cycling tip, just just run us through some of your favourites.
5: Uh, Well, yeah, I I would have liked to have got into kind of collecting race-worn jerseys. Herbie Sykes who's going to be joining us here at Milan San Remo for our friend special. He's a historian as well as a journalist and author. And he's got an absolutely enviable collection of race-worn jerseys. And his era is kind of the 60s and 70s. I mean, at his uh, apartment in Turin during the Giro, I dropped in to see him. And he just showed me this Aladdin's cave of knitted jerseys, the woolen jerseys all perfectly packed and folded in, uh, in in plastic bags. And I was, I mean, I was absolutely green with envy at some of the jerseys he's got, you know, Eddie Merckx's jerseys, jerseys from the Giro and the Tour. Uh, for me, I've collected uh, just the, the ones that you can buy, you know, so um, I, I started off buying up on eBay jerseys that uh, reminded me of when I first got into cycling. So the Zed Peugeot team with the, the big cartoon explosion Zed on the chest, or a faggle team which uh, Stephen Roach and Sean Yates and Malcolm Elliott rode for. Those kind of designs which I think you know still stand up today are you know among my favourites. I think Jersey design kind of lost its way for me a little bit in the 2000s when it all became a little bit corporate and the sort of the the company logo started to take over from the design, but I think it's moving back in the opposite direction. I think there are some exceptions. I mean, you look at the Ante Marche jersey, you wouldn't say, oh, wow, that's an absolute beauty. But, but it's done I well. After him, it, it, it does stand out. It does stand out. You can spot it a long way off. I, I think the, 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 the difficulty for cycling is, you know, the, the athletes need to look good in it. But by the same token, who are they trying to sell to? And the demographic is certainly in Europe. You know, who is the Ante Marche supermarket trying to appeal to? i think in the uk and in america and australia we think of cycling as this you know super cool sport which it obviously is but i think in the european heartland and i'm not being disrespectful at no. all but it is an older sport you know it doesn't necessarily wow the the, the you know the, the tick generation of kids over here and perhaps you know it's trying to do in the UK, America, and Australia, and so I think the sport itself, in terms of its visual identity, is really trying to balance off too many different things. And some teams do it well, and some teams
0: don't. You just reminded me of something, Lionel. You and I made a kilometer zero.
5: You were collecting the jerseys from what? Well, which race was it from? Uh, it was the Tour de France leaders jerseys from 1989, designed by the Italian pop artist Mario Schifano. That's and- a- he, he started out, his, he was a cycling fanatic, and apparently in his apartment, he, which was also his studio, you know, he had loads of TVs, and he'd have a cycling on the TVs and he'd be working away on his art. I mean, he was a, a fairly troubled character as well. I think he had, in that episode, we talked about it, but he had uh, addiction um, well, issues yeah. With, with, yeah. with drugs, Yeah, addiction problems. Um, but he was you know a, a real kind of creative firebrand, and he came up with these uh, sort of almost hand-drawn, almost crayon, Motifs that grace the Tour de France jerseys in that year, 1989, and uh, yeah, I spent uh, more money than I would like to admit buying them up on eBay, just replica ones, not ri- originals, because I, I spoke to somebody from Castelli, who uh, you know quickly pointed out that they were just the replica ones that they produced for um, you know the, the, the market to buy, rather than ones that were issued to the Tour de France. But still, they mean something to me because you know, that Tour de France kind of dominated. Uh, my summer in 1989 and when I see a uh, photograph with those jerseys they are so distinctive I mean it's the only year they use them and uh, I think that is one of the things about the sport and its design when there's a really strong design that you can date immediately or you can associate with a rider or with a race I think that's what catches uh, what makes a strong design really memorable
0: well we should put a link to that in the show notes because that episode I think did it involve Mick Jagger at one
5: point Wait, in that episode or oh, do you know, you're testing my memory now. There is some rock and so roll, isn't many... there?
0: I'm sure it's a Rolling Stones thing that comes
5: into it. Just listen you, to you, it anyway. Your memory, <laughs> your memory is better than mine. Yeah, um, the, the collection is still hanging in my wardrobe. Uh, I've got a, a, a rail reserved for my favourite football and cycling jerseys. Yeah, that's sad to admit. And I mean, my partner says, you know, what are all these jerseys worth? And I'm like, well, you know, obviously, more than I paid for them, I promise.
0: <laughs> well, listen, there's a fella who lives up the road from me just up there. His name's Steve Hodge. And he sold a jersey for 7 million. So, uh, yeah.
5: Oh, that was the Maradona World Cup shirt, wasn't it? That's right. yeah, yeah. But, yeah. I, I wonder... I mean, Herbie was very coy about how much he spent on his jerseys. Well, I actually recorded him because I think I was going to make a kilometre zero on Herbie's collection for the Giro. So that made well see the night of day in May time. But, yeah, jersey design... Uh, it's one of those things for me in the present, I'm not really that wowed by things. Like for, at the time, I didn't think the Maho jerseys were anything yeah. really to like home about. But now you look back and you remember just, you know, how bold they looked at the time and how bold they look today. I think, you know, in a lot of cases, uh, a, the passage of time means that, you know, you appreciate the jerseys more than perhaps uh, we did at the time. Well, um, we'll leave you there, Lionel,
0: and enjoy San Remo. Uh, before we go, just uh, give us give the uh, MAP jerseys a plug. Where can people get hold
6: of them?
5: Well, from MAP.cc, M-A-A-P.cc. It's a great collaboration for us. I mean, it is, uh, you know, they, they've they you know, supported us since the start of last year, and the, the design of the jersey was something that really kind of thrilled and, and surprised and excited us. And, uh, yeah, with the, with the nice weather coming, um, I'm looking forward to pulling it on again.
0: And you can give mine to me at Roubaix.
5: Okay, oh. I promise. I it's promise. booked.
0: I'm leaving the country for the first time since 2019.
5: It's on. The only two people covering Paris Roubaix in a Nissan Qashqai, eh? <laughs> and a poncho.
2: <laughs> well, I really found it interesting there what Kate was saying about the design and movement on the body, because this is something that I spoke to a designer with quite a while ago now, and I think it may have been Marie Cortal from Katusha back when Katusha was a thing. Um, and we were discussing how the old style of cycling jerseys, which was very much more like um, a block print where you have your sponsors logos in in one block and then another block. And the way that didn't really enhance the female form in particular, because the thing about women's bodies is they are all so different and we are, even in the athletic figure, much more shapely than men. And so when you've got these, um, you know, much more blocky type uh, cycling prints, cycling kits, it's, it's much easier actually to tell the riders apart but it's also much less flattering for the female form. And so now we have a lot more jerseys that seem to have understood that and they've they've really got a lot softer. You know, Canyon Tram is the best example. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, this podcast is not one where you're going to hear us saying that Canyon Tram have a bad kit, Um, but it really softens the female form. It really works for the female form. But the difficult thing for a commentator or someone who's watching the race is because it softens it, it makes it really difficult to tell the riders apart and I've really noticed that as a trend across a lot of different um women's cycling teams, Canyon Shram, UAE, ADQ, um, SD works, the, the EF Tipco SVB jersey last year. It was so much more difficult to tell the riders apart because you couldn't see kind of, you know, the more specific bits of their form because the jersey softened it in, in a really nice way. And it's definitely, you know, it's not something that all the teams have picked up on, but a lot of them have. And um, the ones that have are definitely the jerseys that are being worn more yeah. by the public. So it's probably something that everybody else should pick up on too.
0: Well, I don't know if you... I don't know... Um, I'm going to end up here, Lizzie, but I, this is a tangent. But I don't know if you've uh, been indulging in reality TV um, while you've been on the sofa recovering from uh, your rides this week. <laughs> no, or I, last few weeks. no, I haven't. Have, have you, right, okay. Well, my recommendation is there's a there's a show on Netflix called Physical 100. Oh, did you see Squid Game? <laughs> <laughs> didn't. you didn't see squid game so squid game right the massive this this big sensation uh sort of a korean um drama uh, uh, kind of like a reality tv thing where the reality tv idea is taken to sort of murderous terrifying um extremes but there's this thing called physical 100 right 100 people no presenter and they're put through these physical tests until there is one person left, And all these people are like the fittest people in Korea, right? And they all represent different sports. But the finalist, and this is a spoiler, right? One of the finalists is a cyclist. Ooh. But he comes from, he rides Kirin. Um, so back to graphics, they shut—they they cut away with lots of footage of Kirin. The graphics on Kirin jerseys are rad. They look mm. amazing. Mm. But this guy, anyway, listen, go watch Physical 100. I want to speak to this I, I don't think any other cycling pod is chasing the guy who got to the <laughs> final of Physical 100 who rides Kirin and I don't even know if he rides I don't even know I think of Kirin as a Japanese thing so I don't know if they ride it in South Korea so I've got some research to do but um, <laughs> okay yeah, we'll
2: get, right. get back to us next month um, Tom that's in why the meantime I'll be <laughs> watching
0: Squid 100 Squid, Squid... Squid Game of Physical 100 Squid... but listen Lizzie if they ever do a version over here in the UK which they definitely will listen go and represent cycling for okay, us okay that's
2: what I'm training for right
0: now yeah yeah you have to you have to get quite handy with pushing boulders up hills and things like <laughs> okay. that so that's okay that's your training well that was a tangent wasn't it i'll see you next month Is it, in fact yes i will see you next month and hopefully i'll see you in roubaix that's my plan i can't promise but i'm gonna try and come to roubaix you're gonna need I
2: to pick up that bike from the bike
0: shop first tom i'm not bringing a bike there's literally no chance i'm not i don't do corners and i definitely <laughs> you, don't you do can problems. be our driver <laughs> Mechanic. Yeah, man. well, I do you know what? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I do. I do really want to do the. Not, one thing I haven't done is the sort of, sort of chasing around the different cobbled uh, sectors. So, yeah, maybe I will. Maybe I will do some driving. I certainly like to be in the car with. That'd be great.
6: The cycling podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freib, and Lionel Burney.